I've got a question for us as we're in Psalm 23 and we're thinking, uh, we've been in Psalm 23 for the last two weeks. This is the third week. We're, this is how we're setting our year up. I want, want us to consider the shepherd of our souls. I wanna ask you this question. Is it okay, do you, do you think that it's okay to call God your friend? Is it okay for you to call God your friend? Now, some, some, some people said yes, you know, with confidence. Others of us in the room, I would imagine, are a little bit uncomfortable calling God friend. I would imagine that based on the way that you've grown up, churches that you've grown up in, um, I've got some friends who are coming out of Catholicism, and oftentimes one of the trappings of being a part of the Catholic Church is that um, God is at a bit of a distance. He's untouchable in some ways. Um, early on in my discipleship, the church that I was a part of, they used to sing this song called Friend of God. And it went over and over and over again. I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. And, and, uh, and we used to, me and a group of friends, we used to, you know, we'd sing it. It was catchy, um, but it was also a little bit cheesy. And we would, uh, we would just, we'd poke fun at this song pretty regularly, but it would get stuck in your head. And so we would, we'd make fun of it. And part of the reason, though, that I think that I made fun of this song was because deep down I was, I was skeptical about the message of the song, right? Yes, I believe that God is love. Yes, I believe that he is gracious. And yes, I believe that he is good. And also he is holy. He's the alpha and omega. He is a judge too. And so when you start to understand God's perfections and you see our own dysfunction and our own sinfulness, it can be a challenge for us to view God as our friend. But the more and more that you and I come to know the gospel and come to rehearse the good news of Jesus and the, the person of Jesus of Nazareth and his work in the world, the more real and the more possible it actually becomes that God is a great friend to us, to those who, through faith in Jesus Christ, belong to him. Now, are God and men mutuals? No. But can non-mutuals share friendship? Yes, absolutely. Think about our own human relationships. Think about a parent and a child. As the child grows up and matures, that relationship morphs more and more into a relationship of friendship and connection. Some of you, um, employers, some of you bosses, you have legitimate friendship with those that you employ, and that, is, that, that can be okay. Think about coaches and players. As players come up under coaches, they develop legitimate friendships. Think about even, it's a bit of a stretch, but think about uh, shepherd and sheep. Think about humans and animals. Now, we've gone way crazy on the animal front in our day, but animals provide companionship. Thinking about the dog, not the cat. <laughs> right? They provide some companionship to us. You could say, I don't think it's that big of a stretch to say actual friendship. Um, so we're in Psalm 23, and, and in Psalm 23, we call that David calls the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, our shepherd. So why am I then talking about friendship right now? Because in Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6, the metaphor begins to shift. 
It shifts from verse one, the Lord is our shepherd, I have what I need, to in verse five, he seats me, he prepares that you actually prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So it shifts from the Lord is our shepherd to the Lord is our host. The Lord is actually our friend. So the shepherd imagery, it seems, has served its purpose here, and now it's being replaced by a relationship where there is greater intimacy. And in verses five and six, I'll read them in just a moment, but we see this back and forth, uh, this back and forth honor happening. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's you. Thank you for preparing a table before me. And it is God himself. It is the host here, our friend who, uh, who serves and, and who serves abundantly as well. Now, like last week, if we, uh, if we remove God's presence and if we remove God's work from Psalm 23, we actually have a nightmare on our hands. Uh, if we are truly on our own, then uh, my life, my future, everything in front of me is dependent on the resources that I have at my disposal, dependent upon my will to get things done and to stay the course, dependent on my quality of relationships. It all comes back to me, and you'll see this on the screen, the me psalm. When we take God and the shepherd and his work out of the psalm, all we have is me, and all we have is my, and all we have is me in the presence of my enemies. Uh, I walk through the valley of danger, and I am alone. I, all of the days of my life. Everything rests on us if this is how we're living our life. And just the fact that, that Psalm 23 is in our Bibles just this fact is more evidence of God serving us and being gracious to us and being good to us. Uh, a friend reached out. I've had a number of people say that they're just living in Psalm 23 lately and that Psalm 23 has gotten them through some very difficult times. This is nourishment for the soul. Derek Kidner says this about Psalm 23. He says, depth and strength underlie the simplicity of this psalm. Depth and strength underlie the simplicity. Yeah, it's simple, but there's depth and strength to it. He says, its peace is not escape. Its contentment is not complacency. There is readiness to face deep darkness and imminent attack. And the climax of this psalm, which is where we are in verses 5 and 6 today, reveals a love which homes or focuses toward not a material goal. Yeah, God, I get all your things and all your stuff, but actually it focuses and climaxes on God himself. He is our prize, as we just sang. Let's read uh, Psalm 23. Black Bibles around the room, open those up. If you need to know where the Psalms are, there's a table of contents in the front. Uh, turn on your phone if you're reading it on your, uh, or turn on your Bible if you're reading it on your phone. Grab a Bible if you've brought one with you. I hope you did. Uh, let's be a people of the book. This is Psalm 23. The words will also be on the screen, but I want us to be interacting with the scriptures as well. I'm reading out of the ESV. The words on the screen are in the uh, CSB. They're a little bit different. The ones on the screen are probably just a little bit more fluid, but they're very similar. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I have what I need. 
He makes me or lets me lie down in green pastures. He, li- he leads me beside still waters or waters of rest. He restores my soul or renews my life. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death or the valley where there is deep darkness, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, would you open our eyes to see what you are teaching your people. Holy Spirit, you are the one who opens eyes and who enlightens us. Please do that. I pray that we would see with clarity how Psalm 23 connects us to our Lord Jesus Christ too in this new covenant age. So, so open our eyes to discover the depths and the riches that are contained in your word to us, your revelation of yourself. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. There are a few things, and you Definitely draw out more, but there are a few things that I want to draw out of Psalm 23 this week. Uh, I want us to remember the goodness of our God who is big on celebration and delight. I want us to remember the goodness of our God who's big on celebration and delight. I want us to remember that our God, our host and friend, will vindicate his people and will put his enemies to shame. I want us to remember that God, our host and friend, protects his people I want us to remember that God, our host and friend, assures us that our future is incredibly bright. Starting at the top, uh, let's remember that, uh, let's remember the goodness of our God who is big on celebration and delight. Now, around the very first of the year, we all, many of us, not all of us, but we set out on our Bible reading plans, right? Our Bible listening plans. If you don't have... Well, um, Dwell is an app that, that, that All of Life purchases a license for you. You can go on our website. In the search down menus, you can just find Dwell. You can go and get a, a unique code to download that app on your phone. It's an audio app that will read the Bible to you in any version you want, male and female voices, um, different accents, different countries, different versions, all of it, um, Bible reading plans to just help you. Um, that is at no cost to you, free. We would love for you to listen to the scriptures. This is how the church has been doing this for centuries. The, the printing press is where we got our physical Bibles, but until then, people have been listening. It's audible. It's oral listening to God's Word. So it is not, you're not a second-class citizen if you listen to God's Word versus read His Word. Around the first of the year, we take off on these Bible reading plans, right? We, uh, we often things are going swimmingly. Genesis Exodus, we're in the narratives, it's it's exciting, it's moving fast. And then the last half of Exodus where God starts to describe the tabernacle and the plans for building the tabernacle, we can kind of like glaze over a little bit, the reading, the excitement starts to dry out a little bit. And then we get into Exodus and the sideways energy in Exodus is real. You see it? I feel like that is what so many of our read the Bible in a year plans are like. And we'll fall off the wagon. But here is where, here's what I want to, here's just what I want to urge you toward. Stay the course. Stay the course. God through his word, God through his scriptures, 
He is preparing a table. He's setting a table for us to be able to come to know who he is, to be able to come to know what he is like, to be able to come to know how he works in his world. Not just back then, but he is the God who never changes. And so the way that he works in the world is the same for us today. So stay the course. Now, um, just a little bit about Leviticus, and this is going to feel like a, a a bit of a treasure hunt, but I'm going to get it back to the main point here. The, these laws that are described in Leviticus, they're, they're, they're foreign to us and they often feel foreign to us. And the laws that you'll read about when you're in this third book of the Torah, uh, they're given to instruct God's chosen people on how to prepare themselves in order to come before God, to be purified by him. The keeping of the law does not purify the people of Israel. God is the one who atones for the sins of Israel. But the, these, these, these rites of ritual cleansing, God has given to Israel to prepare their hearts and to prepare their physical bodies to come into his presence in order to be atoned for. The very center of the Torah, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, the very center of the Torah is Leviticus chapter 16 and 17. Like the emotional theological center of the Torah is Leviticus 16. This is called the Day of Atonement. It's the good news day of Israel's calendar. So the people over the course of the year will come um, to the temple and they will offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins and the priests will mediate God's presence to the people of Israel. But they're, they're, I would imagine like us, there's these nagging suspicions like, have I done enough? Have I confessed at all? Are there sins that I don't even know about that I haven't confessed? And the Day of Atonement was a day where, where Yahweh would would uh, atone for the sins of Israel fully and finally, the entire nation, a new slate every single year. It was the gracious act of God to do this for the people of Israel. And so here is what would happen on that day. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This day of atonement is a Sabbath of, a, of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. God would say, you, you've got to get your head in the game. You've got to prepare yourselves according to the way that I have commanded you. But it is a permanent statute. This is a permanent day on the calendar to make atonement for the Israelites once a year because of all their sins. And this was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I want you to notice, and here's kind of where the rabbit trail comes back into view. I I want you to notice what comes right after this day of atonement. What do you think comes right after the day of atonement? Celebration. Celebration. Yahweh teaches the Israelites about his holiness and then he commands them to celebrate. Think about this for a moment. He is big on celebration and delight. He commands them to observe festivals and feasts. He wants Israel to remember their salvation and to celebrate their salvation. He is an incredible host. He commands them, uh, observe these festivals, observe these feasts every year. And actually, if they don't celebrate, they sin. You got to celebrate or you're in sin. You've got to celebrate and so we could say that because salvation and because celebration originate in God's mind, that, that this even is a picture of him preparing a table for his people. It's not that big of a stretch. He's commanded the Hebrews to eat. He's commanded them to drink. He's commanded them to celebrate, and he's commanded them to rest at least seven times a year. 
Some of these are single days in the year, in the annual calendar. Some of them are seven-day stretches, seven-day festivals. Think about the week between Christmas and New Year's. But we're like hitting New Year, we're hitting Christmas and we're hitting New Year's and we're kind of like, we're not really rallying in between, but imagine that entire week just being one of consistent, I mean, let's be honest, I feasted the entire way through, I ate my way through Christmas and New Year's, I need to do something about that. But um, it just so happens also that Israel, they're surrounded by their enemies on all sides, He prepares this table before them and they're surrounded by their enemies on all sides. So when we read in Psalm 23, verses five and six, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. We're hearing King David celebrate his shepherd and celebrate how his shepherd serves him a sheep. Have you ever been served by someone that you feel is more or was more dignified, more honorable than you? Like you're you're just going, I don't know what you're doing serving me. I should actually be serving you. It's incredibly humbling when somebody who you respect greatly serves you and gives themselves up for you. In 2015 and 2016, I traveled to a church over in Wenatchee with about 15 to 20 other pastors and church planters. And we would go uh, once a month for two days for a nine-month stretch. So we spent a period of two days at a time and they would fly in world-class teachers and leaders and pastors to just spend time with 15 or 20 of us in a room together and they would put off what they had to be about for that week and they would just intentionally serve us. They'd feed us breakfast and sit at the table with us, lunch, they'd take us out to dinner, we'd go on excursions, they would teach us throughout the day, we'd have these Q&A sessions. It was absolutely a formative time in my life. It was such a humbling and good experience and I, and I just found myself going like, you shouldn't be doing this for me. We should actually be doing this for you. And their culture of joyful generosity has had a profound impact on me. And I, I'm just thinking about that. And like, that's just one instance of, of several where I've had where I'm just like, man, I'm so humbled at another person's willingness to invest in me. And our shepherd is a million times more honorable and dignified than David. 10 million times more honorable and dignified than you and I. And what is this psalm? What does Psalm 23 teach us? That the Lord generously befriends us unworthy as we are and provides for us. And so as we get into these closing lines of Psalm 23, center stage is the host and his welcome guest and friend. So I want us to remember that our God is big on celebration and delight. I want us also to remember that God, our host and friend, will vindicate his people and he will put the wicked to shame. He'll put the wicked to shame. There's hope in that. Last, last week, we considered verse four and how verse, in verse four, where he says, um, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Um, we, we considered how in verse four, it is hard but good for us to recognize that the sovereign purposes of God oftentimes conflict with our wills. The sovereign purposes of God oftentimes conflict with what we want. 
like sometimes we wander away from him, from presence with him. We disobey him intentionally. And that's how we find ourselves in dark places. And that's how we find ourselves in dark seasons. But in Psalm 23, it actually, it appears that the good shepherd actually leads his sheep through the dark valleys. Like he is the one taking us into these hard places. But I want us to recognize, and I spent more time unpacking that last week, but I want us to recognize that this psalmist, David here, he does something. He decides, I will fear no evil. It's not that he's not scared. He's scared. But he decides, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's your rod and your staff that comfort me. Some of us in the room need to decide that God is with us. We need to decide to go to war with our fears. We need to make the decision because we're one foot in, one foot out. We're hemming and hawing, and it's not that life will get easier for us. It may actually get more difficult, but but difficult things are easier to go through when we know we are not alone. Kids are not afraid of the dark. Kids are afraid of being alone in the dark. Our shepherd is with us, and we need to decide that we will fear no evil. And it's not that fear will just dissipate in that moment. We'll have to continually go to war again and again and again with our fear. See, uh, in the dark and terrifying seasons, it is, it is so instinctual for the three pounds of meat between our ears to just believe and actually to decide that we're alone. It's instinctual. It's like, that's like, that is knee-jerk for us. We, we decide, we believe that the shepherd isn't there, that he's cut us loose, that we're on our own. And that is, as you saw in the me psalm, that is a terror to our souls. But David realizes something in this valley where these deep, dark shadows lurk and potentially present danger. He realizes that his shepherd is closer than ever. And that's where he moves from third-person pronouns to second-person pronouns. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down. And then all of a sudden in verse four, I will fear no evil for you are with me. We're tempted to think God is distant, but actually it's in our fears. Oftentimes we can realize that he is close. And it is dark. Like Let's not like minimize the fact that we are afraid, the fact that it is scary and that things are dark. The Dark literally makes things hard to see clearly, which is why we need objective truth. It's why we need our Bibles. Why? Because when our minds start getting all crazy and making stuff up on us, the scriptures assure us of what is true. We have a shepherd and we have a friend. So in verse four, the shepherd leads the sheep through places they don't want to go. And in verse 5, this metaphor switches to God as our host and our friend. And he actually is the one who leads us to sit across from our enemies. How did the enemies get to the table? God brought them to the table. And he brought us to the table. Notice here in verse 5 too, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Which one is singular and which one is plural? Plural. Me is singular and enemies is plural. 
It's like the table is stacked against us. It's like we are alone, but look closer. Who does the host prepare the table for? You or your enemies. Who does, whose cup overflows? You or your enemies. Whose head is anointed with oil? You or your enemies. It's not the enemies who are being served here. Center stage is the host and his welcome guest and friend. We get a picture of this in the Old Testament book of Esther. How many of you are familiar with Esther? In Esther, uh, there, there, is, there, there are a few players. There's King Xerxes, there's Esther. She's a Jewish wife. She's a Jewish queen, wife of the king. There's her uncle, a guy named Mordecai, and then there's this bad actor named Haman. And in Esther, Haman is totally insecure, but he's got a lot of power, um, and he is a, uh, uh, he's an advisor to the king, and he wants, Haman wants everybody when they come near to him to bow down in his presence. And so this guy, this Jewish guy named Mordecai, the uncle of the queen, he is in the presence of Haman, and he refuses to bow down. And the text in Esther tells us that, that Haman, this bad actor, was filled with fury at that. And because he has the king's ear, he doesn't just want to take it out on his rage out on Mordecai. He wants to take it out on all of Mordecai's people, the Jews who are in in exile in Persia. And so he goes to the king and he gets the king to issue this decree. He's like, hey, they're not abiding by your laws. They're contrary to you. They're a threat. We need to take them out. And the king issues the decree, not understanding that his wife Esther is a Jew. That's her background. She's kept it hidden from him. And what we find out in this story is that um, there's another situation. See, God's sovereign, uh, his, his sovereign purposes, he's never outright mentioned in the book of Esther, but he's at work in the background the whole time. And that's why it's in our Bibles, to just show us how God is so often, all the time actually, he's at work in the background, whether we feel him or see him or hear him or not. And what happens is that Mordecai, he discovers that a few other bad actors are actually plotting to assassinate the king. And he gets word to the king that this assassination attempt is going to happen, and he saves the king's life. And so the king wishes to honor Mordecai. And so what does he do? He calls one of his advisors in, bad actor named Haman, and he says, hey, Suppose there's somebody in your kingdom who you really, really care about and you want to honor. How would you honor them? And Haman, in his pride and conceit, thinks that the king is wanting to honor him. And so he says, you know what I'd do? I'd seat him on a stallion. I'd lead a procession throughout the entire city in front of him, just asking the entire city to just pour out adoration and praise on this welcome guest. And the king goes, great, I want you to do that for Mordecai. And Haman is mortified humiliated in that moment, but he has to. The king has told him to do it. And so to his humiliation, he leads Mordecai on this procession, urging the entire city to give Mordecai praise for the way that he had spared the king's life. And he goes home humiliated. Well, in this time, Esther discovers of Haman's plot to exterminate all of the Jews, and, and she, she gathers some boldness up from within and at the urging of Mordecai, and she calls a special feast with the king and with Haman and with Mordecai and her also at the table. And in this, at this feast, Mordecai and Haman are sitting across from one another. 
and Esther reveals Haman's plot to exterminate her and all of her people. And in a massive plot twist, Haman is executed on the gallows that he had designed to execute Mordecai. Imagine being Mordecai at this table with your enemy sitting across from you who wants your life and who potentially has the power to take it because he's got the king's ear and the king's power. You're actually at the king's table as the king's honored guest. No matter how close your enemy may be to you, what can your enemy do to you? They're powerless. In fact, it's to your enemy's humiliation that the king honors you. And this is what David is teaching us through Psalm 23 about what the Lord, our host, and our friend who is for us does for each of us. Elsewhere, David will... Actually, in in Psalm uh, 66, there's this really interesting phrase where, uh, where the psalmist, I don't, I don't think it's David, the psalmist writes, um, Lord, when you command your enemies, come cringing to you. That's the kind of power that the Lord has. When he commands his enemies to come, they come. There is no resistance. They come, tail between the legs, cringing to you. David in Psalm 31, he says, He says, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Oh Lord, let me not be put to shame for I call upon you. In fact, let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently down into the earth or to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak, which speak insolently against the righteous in their pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. He goes on and he says, in the cover of your presence, Lord, you hide them from the plots of men, those who are his. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city, David writes. He said, he he, he writes, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. He's believing that he's alone. But he says, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. He concludes by saying, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. God, our host, is quick to honor his friends and to vindicate them. To vindicate means to clear someone of blame to clear someone of suspicion, to justify them. So what if your coworkers know that you follow Jesus? So what if you pray with one of your friends in the hallway between classes? They may oppose you. People may misunderstand you. They may, your employer may call you into the office to discipline you or even fire you on account of Jesus Christ. 
Do not be a jerk and do not be unkind, but represent your king and watch him provide for you and, prov- and preserve you. We may lose our jobs. We may lose our influence. We already are losing our influence. Things may, probably will, get challenging and more and more complicated for followers of Jesus in the coming days. And do not go looking for a fight. But when the fight comes to you, stand your ground and trust your king. He's with you. Trust him with your conduct. Trust him with your words. Honor him with your conduct. Honor him with your words. Be willing to turn your cheek as you trust him. Those who humble themselves will be exalted at the proper time. And our work is to humble ourselves before our shepherd who cares for us. Your shepherd will come through on his promises. The good shepherd Jesus will come through for you with his goodness and mercy, and it may, probably will, come in ways that you do not expect, but it will come. Let's remember that God, our host and our friend, protects his people. Chad Bird, a theologian, gave me this thought, and I've reworked it a bit here, making it my own, but he's the, he's the originator of it here. Um, the Hebrew word for follow in Psalm 23, verse 6, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Hebrew word for follow is radaf. But the translation of this verb, radaf, as follow, is it's, it's weak, uh, it's bloodless, it's, it's passionless. Radoff means to chase after. Radoff means to pursue. It, actu- it literally means to hunt. God's goodness and mercy don't bumble after us like a puppy or kind of like follow us in passionless commitment. God's goodness and mercy sweat and chase after us with intent and with intensity. God's mercy is hot. It stays hot on our heels like a linebacker on the ball. It is coming for us whether we like it or not. The divine love and grace of our shepherd redoff us all the way into his kingdom and into the arms of our waiting father. That's what it means for the goodness and the mercy of God to follow us. It means it, we are pursued by his mercy. We are chased by his grace. We're not merely followed. Listen to this, uh, this quote by um, a historical commentary. Referring to our shepherd, referring to Yahweh as I am, they write, I am's benevolences, that is his good work, his good will toward us, will pursue me as in a chase or hunt so as not to allow the beneficiary to escape I am's unfailing desire and commitment to do him good. You see what this is saying? God is going to chase you down with an unfailing commitment to do you good. What a contrast is the pagans' conceptions of God with the biblical. Many pagans imagine their gods as demonic and or hideous to look at. Sometimes they're dragon-like in form, and they demand appeasing sacrifices, even child sacrifice, to ward off their hostility. 
But instead of demanding human sacrifice, the God of Israel sacrificed his own son to satisfy his justice. No religion rivals God's revelation of himself as a God of sacrificial love. Why is God's love sacrificial? Why is his love sacrificial? Because he had to do something at great cost to himself in order to serve us. He, uh, he had to enter into our mess in order to rescue us from our mess. How does... He had to endure as one of us in order to represent us as a man. How does one even become a friend of God in the first place? Because that's not where we started. Humanity, none of us started out as God's friend. We actually started out contrary. The scriptures call us before belief and faith in Christ as children of wrath. That's a hard word, sharp word, but it's a biblical teaching. We have fallen short of what we were created for. We start out as, as his enemies. So how does one come to have God as being for them, not against them, as a friend rather than an enemy? Friendship with God comes through trusting Jesus. Friendship with God comes through trusting Jesus. Trusting that Jesus is the Son of God who comes to take away and to endure sin as one of us. He comes to take away our sin. He comes to absorb our fallenness. He comes to take away our disbelief, our self-sufficiency. He comes to take away our shame and guilt. Every way that you and I have fallen short of what we were created for, Jesus has come and he has lived in our place to live up to exactly what we were created for. Jesus is sinless and the life that he lived on our soil as Jesus of Nazareth was sinless and he did that for you and me. He did that for us. And he died the guilty death under the, wrath of, under the wrath of God that you and I, that we don't want to die. And he did that for us. He's that personal. He's that close. He's closer than a brother and the best kind of friend to all who trust him. And all that he asks of you and I now, all that we really can do is to come to him with the empty hands of faith, saying, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Rescue it's all we offer him is empty hands, bringing nothing to him. All we bring to him actually is our liabilities. We don't bring assets. We are a liability to him. And yet he enters our space, lives the life that we were called to live, dies the death we do not want to die, and he did it for us. And so we receive his gift of mercy with our empty hands of faith, and when you and I do that, that's when he starts to give you and I the future that Jesus deserves. That's when Jesus credits to us a future that Jesus deserves. Jesus has earned our salvation and you and I get to rejoice in it. We get to enjoy it. And that is incredibly bright. Here's my last point this morning. I want us to remember, let's remember that God our host and friend assures us that our future is incredibly bright. We will dwell with God in his presence for all of our days. Because of the gospel, we can endure everything that we are facing, whatever it is that we're facing, purely because 
of the hope that the gospel of mercy holds before us. The goodness of God continued to hunt us down and preach the good news of Jesus into the not yet believing territories of our hearts. And so we can say with confidence, only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever as long as I live. And we can say with confidence, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He really is our shepherd. He really is our host. He really is our friend. Trust him as your closest friend. Father, we love you. My word, the lengths that you have gone to draw us in, to call us home, to call us to you, to give us newness of life, to rescue us from the the wages of our sin, physical death and spiritual death, all of it you've done for us. You've given us your son to accomplish it. You've given us your spirit to empower us to believe it, to empower us to follow you, to empower us to live new lives. So lead us, Holy Spirit. Lead us, Jesus. Lead us, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.